you're in for a real treat today. I'm excited um, about this morning for a couple reasons. One is, you know that we launched Life Groups last Sunday, right? Everybody knows we launched Life Groups last Sunday, and everybody signed up, right? So everybody's in a Life Group, so that's awesome. Um, now, uh, there is an opportunity for you to join a Life Group today right after service. Um, Dolores Lancaster, our Life Group facilitator, is out in the lobby, and she is available at a table there to help guide you to a Life Group. Life Groups is where we form unity in community. It's where we grow bigger and smaller at the same time. Uh, urge you to get involved in a Life Group, or you can do it on our website, ucityfamilychurch.com, and then all of our Life Group leaders are listed, and their telephone numbers and their emails. Just look at the Life Group listing, and if there's... Uh, one or two that interest you, you can reach out directly to the leader. So I'm excited for you to get involved. Um, but the second reason I'm excited about this morning is we have a guest speaker today who is a very dear friend of our family. His family and our family are very close. His name is Ian Noyce, uh, the Reverend Ian Noyce. And before he was the Reverend Ian Noyce, he was my college roommate. Uh, and and um, But he was still pretty reverend back then. I got to be, I gotta be honest. Um, Ian is... Uh, holds a special place in my heart because he's one of the guys who helped to lead me to the faith. In fact, he's probably the primary person that helped to lead me to faith in Christ. When I was in college, I was not a believer, and uh, I was very outspokenly not a believer. And um, Ian was a philosophy major at the University of Missouri, and I was a religious studies major at the University of Missouri. And then our friend Brett Foster was an English literature major at the University of Missouri. And they were both Christians, and I wasn't. And so we would have these two-on-one arguments um, about philosophy and religion and the nature of the universe and God and all of this until the middle of the night. Uh, and we would go on long road trips together and have this long discussion. And after about 10 years of these discussions, um, I finally became a, a believer. And Ian was one of the first guys I called. And I called him. And I go, hey, man, you won. Um, and, and he has just been a, a, a great friend over the years. Um, he has pastored a number of churches around the country, most recently uh, First Presbyterian Berkeley Church, uh, which is in Berkeley, California. A uh, very huge church, um, but he's also uh, pastored little small church plants in Driggs, Idaho. Uh, so he's done, uh, been a pastor of small churches, big churches. He got his uh, Master's of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell. Uh, and he just has a heart for speaking into um, the very depths of what it means to be the church and what that looks like and what that turns out to be for you and me. Last week I preached about unity in the church. Uh, standing together or falling apart. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that sermon, I would urge you to go online and, and listen to that. Ian is taking uh, that same uh, sermon and, and expanding it into the purpose of the church. Um, this is Ian's family. Mindy is here too. Mindy, would you raise your hand? So good to see you. And Ian's parents are here today. And we're so glad to have all of you here. Um, this is, this, is, this is them. They are an adventuresome, fun family. You might even find them on top of a mountain uh, somewhere going skiing. I mean, they're just, they're just a great family to be around. Um, and, and I'm thrilled to hear what Ian has to bring for us today. I, I got a sneak peek at the 830 service. And I would just urge you to take a moment today, still your heart, open your heart, and listen to the word of God uh, that Ian is going to bring 
to us. Ian was one of the original overseers of our church. He helped us to launch this church um, five and a half years ago and was instrumental in getting us started. So would you please join me in giving Ian Noyes a warm round of applause from U City Family Church and welcome him on up here. So Brent said, I, uh, I won that argument. Uh, how many of you are here are grateful that Jesus won that argument? Yeah. I, I have to tell you. Yeah. I mean, how wonderful it is. It's not about a, a sort of giving in to certain ideas, but it's about re- giving your life over to a person, to the person of Jesus Christ. I'm just grateful for Brent's role in my life. I, I do have to say there were times when my wife would look at me and say, you know, why are you friends with this guy? <laughs> but uh, my life has been enriched and blessed. But yeah, yeah, I'll tell you more later if you really want to know. Um, I just have to say what a joy it is to be here today. Um, we, we really, I mean, this church has just existed in my imagination and on Facebook, really. This is the, like, and we have been praying, my wife, my family, and I have been praying for Brent and Rebecca, for their family, for the birth of this church. And uh, it's just such a gift to be here and to see really what was just an idea in the minds and hearts of this couple, to see it become a reality and, and what just an amazing reality it is, um, to see the faces here, the people here who's, who are gathered in Christ's name together from all different places and all different walks of life. What, what a gift and honor it is to be able to speak to you today. And when Brent asked me to share this morning, he said, you know, the topic is the church's essential mission as it relates to God's kingdom. And I thought, great, thanks for the softball. And he said, and you have 30 minutes to talk about that. All right, done. I'll probably finish early because there's really not that much to say about God's kingdom as it relates to the mission of the church. I mean, that's what the Bible is about. From the beginning to the end, the whole book is really about God's kingdom emerging in the world and how it relates to to this people of God, this mysterious body Flesh and blood in the world, how it animates us and animates our lives. So we're going to spend a little bit of time really just kind of skimming the surface. And I probably could have just opened the Bible to almost any page and found a text that spoke to some of these themes and gotten to this essential heart of God breaking into the world. But I decided to land in this book of Ephesians, this letter that Paul wrote. There are Obviously, a lot of places I can go, but, but this particular text, I think, is poignant for us because it is Paul speaking to churches, really throughout Asia Minor, there's, uh, churches that were newly beginning, and they bumped into some challenges because these were churches that were made up of people from various walks of life, particularly Jews, diaspora Jews, or displaced Jews, Jews that no longer lived in Jerusalem, lived in other places, and Gentiles. And the church became, from its very inception, a place where very different kinds of people, very different assumptions and perceptions of the world were brought together. And the challenges they faced. And then how they contended in a world that was all messed up, in which the life that they were being called to was very different from the culture around them. And I imagine today that we also can feel that way, that the church is still a place where people from different walks of life, different realities— sort of get mashed up together. And also a place that is seeking to contend for that counterintuitive, upside-down life against the backdrop of a world that also is fractured and broken. That story hasn't changed. And so Paul writes this letter to this 
particular church in a series of churches. It's known as an encyclical letter. It was meant to go from place to place to travel as this message. And so as we come to this text this morning, and before we kind of dive any further in, I just want to invite God to to speak to us today. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word and to let your word speak to us, that we might know you and encounter you. But I pray that more than just understanding or deepening our knowledge about you, that you would use your word this morning to also awaken us, to call us to a different kind of life, to enable us to step out in courage and in faith and in boldness, to live your kingdom here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think Paul writes this letter to these churches because he recognizes that it is easy to make secondary things primary things. It's easy to get off course in terms of God's mission. It's easy to kind of flip the order around about what God's doing in the world. And so he writes this to clarify for them. The whole letter is really an intent to encourage them to stay fast and to stay clear, to not get stuck And maybe in your lives or places in which you sort of feel stuck in some ways. Unclear about what God's calling you to. Now, I couldn't be here and not share at least one story about Brent. And I promise I'll just share one this morning. But again, if you want more, come up afterward. Happy to share more. As Brent alluded to, we would, at the end of the semester each year, we would um, travel to a different part of the country. And the way that we planned these trips, so as we got together, figured out which region of the country we wanted to go to, we pulled out a map and we put pins where we knew people. So it was kind of like this uh, two-week-long mooch trip, really, if we're honest, just traveling from one place to another of people that we knew. But sometimes those pins would be further apart, and it was hard to get from one place to the other and uh, always have a place to sleep. So occasionally, this was sort of the the downer of our trip, we would have to sleep in the car. And on this particular occasion, Brent was the one driving kind of through the night and into the night. And and Brett and I, this other friend of mine and I, were sitting in in the back and and just sort of said, you know, we're going to doze off here. But whenever you get tired, you know, pull over to a park or a rest area or something. Just park the car and we'll just sleep through the night and wake up and finish it off in the morning. So the next morning, I wake up to just like the sound of cars whizzing by me. And I, I kind of get the sleep out of my eyes and so I can see what's going on. And I look out and there are literally cars going by, like feet from the car where we were all sleeping. And I like look around and I realize that Brent just got tired and parked in the median, <laughs> right? So like no pull off and exit, no rest area. He's just parked in the median, <laughs> cars whizzing by us on both sides. You can imagine I was completely disoriented. And you know, sometimes we get stuck like that in our lives. The pace of change in our world overwhelms us, whizzing by on both sides. We don't know what to do, and we're just sort of paralyzed and stuck. We just stop. Or maybe there's a challenge at work or a fracture in a relationship, and we just can't imagine God doing anything in that area of our life. And we just feel stuck, kind of caught in the median. And life just sort of whizzes by us on both sides. And we need to be reminded of who we are, and of where we're going to instead join and engage the world that God is fashioning in our midst. Paul's letter to these young churches is such an invitation to shape their imagination for what God's doing and what he's about. 
And really the essential point that, that Paul is trying to make, that the church's mission is first and foremost God's mission. Now that may not seem like a, a kind of a radical statement to suggest that the church's mission is first and foremost God's mission, but we so often just get it flipped around to think that it's up to us somehow to usher in God's kingdom. But it's a work instead that he is doing. And he's working all around us to bring into fullness the world that he's envisioned. And it's significantly larger and more comprehensive than we can imagine. And yet it's also an invitation to more personally embrace that vision as well. Tim Dearborn, in his book, Beyond Duty, A Passion for Christ and a Heart for Mission, puts it this way. He says, It is not the church of God that has a mission in the world, but the God of mission who has a church in the world. The church's mission is its privileged participation in the actions of the triune God. That's what Paul is saying to these young churches, fragile as they are, looking at the brokenness and the fractures in their midst, the challenges in their community outside, and wondering, is God at work? And Paul says, God is in fact profoundly at work. And he writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, this is Ephesians chapter 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and in all, and through all. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, my first impulse in our performance-oriented culture is to hear these words as a kind of burden, a kind of pressure. Live a life worthy of your calling. And I take it upon myself and feel this pressure to somehow perform to tell God and to say to him, you made a good choice in calling me to kind of earn the favor that he's already bestowed. Kind of a fake it till you make it sort of approach to life. But I'm so grateful that the, this text doesn't come to us just as a kind of a nugget, but it comes embedded in the larger story of what Paul's saying. And it's critical to understanding this passage, to see it in the larger letter that Paul is writing. Because just prior to this, just previous to these verses, this therefore points us back to what Paul's already been saying. In fact, he's just been praying for the church and just asking that they would be rooted and grounded in God's great and expansive love. That they might comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth God's love in Christ that surpasses knowledge. In fact, he goes on and he says that they would be filled with all the fullness of God, that even more they would be confident in him who is able to do far more than they even ask or imagine. 
We have to remember that that's the context before this invitation to live a life worthy of the calling is offered because we're invited to see it against the backdrop of this expansive work that God has already accomplished. That's the call. That's the invitation. You see, our life doesn't proceed, but it follows God's grace. It's a response to God's expansive love, the height, the depth, the breadth of it. And the invitation of the gospel is to allow all that fullness, even beyond what we can ask or imagine, to let it inhabit our lives, to participate in that work, to have a share in it. In English, it begins, this verse begins with therefore, but in the Greek, it begins with the word parakaleo, a word that means I urge you, I beg you, I encourage you. As those who are already captive and captivated by this Lord. You've already been captured by this great and expansive love that you can't even measure. I urge you, walk in a manner characteristic of that love. That's marked by that love. That allows that love to flow in and flow through you. And so Paul's letter here is shaped by this teaching and preaching about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. But here we come to this language of discernment. How do we get all this cross and resurrection life, all this victorious life of God in our midst? How do we get it into our lives? How does it move into our space and the reality of who we are? How do we participate in it? It's no surprise that the word parakaleo is also the word for paraclete. The name of the Holy Spirit, that it's God's work, continuing work in and among us that gets that into our life. And we have to look back and see what has God, in fact, accomplished? What has he done in and through Jesus Christ? In the first three chapters of Paul's letter, he talks about all these different realities, all these different tensions and things that God has already accomplished. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And so how much unforgiveness are we going to allow to persist in our lives and in our world? In him we have obtained an inheritance. All that God has is ours. So how much longer will we continue to live with this need for control and and greed? God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which with he has loved us, Even when we were dead, he has made us alive together with Christ. So why and in what ways are we stingy with mercy in the lives of others? In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. So how much longer will we hold people at bay? You are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens and How long will we continue to keep people outside to build walls? He's broken down the walls of hostility, and yet how long will we allow enmity and violence to continue to persist in our world and in our lives? And Paul wants to invite them to think about these things, to allow these realities to penetrate our very lives. And all of this summed up, really, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, where we find what is the will of God Paul writes, he says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purposes which were set forth in Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God's purpose is, what his purposes at work in the church are, 
listen up, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now we have to unpack this a little bit because the church hasn't always done us a great service in this regard. There's a tendency to think about the heavens sort of over here and the earth over here, these two spheres, one in which this is the sort of operative place of our space and the heavens is sort of God's space. And these two realities are are seen to be distinct. And, and sometimes the role of the church and of faith in Christ is to sort of get us from the world over to heaven. Kind of like two fish bowls and the fish sort of jumping between these. And Jesus is somewhere in the middle, kind of getting us from one sphere to the other sphere. But that's not what Paul talks about. It's not what Jesus ever talked about. He talks about these two worlds, the heavens and the earth, being united, that this is the purpose. This is what God is doing in the world. And if we look at the story of Scripture on page one, we get this sense of a world that was fashioned by a God who loved and created. Now, the generosity of his character and his person created the world and created us in intimate connection with him, relationship with God. God's space, our space, the same space. And then we flip the page to page two. Now, mind you, the Bible is a long book. And on page two, it all goes to hell. And our space and God's space fractured, separated. And yet the story of Scripture is a story of God taking these two worlds and reconciling them, bringing them back together. Jesus talked about this. He talked about it as the kingdom of God. In fact, his very first sermon, repent for the kingdom of God is near. It's here. And wherever Jesus went, we see pockets, pockets of the kingdom, these little circles of God's presence as he meets somebody who's blind and heals them and they see or they're broken and they're healed. God's world invading our world. And this is the calling, to live a life worthy of that calling that's characteristic of that calling, that's making room and participating in God's work to break the inbreaking of his kingdom. Advancing his kingdom, entering his kingdom. And so this particular text expands our notion of what God's up to. Gives us a clearer sense of what God is doing. That it's not just a personal transaction, it's a pervasive reality that he's calling to, calling us to. The church that we started in Teton Valley, every time I would stand up to preach, there was, uh, we, we met in this community center in downtown Driggs, Idaho. And right behind me, we would have this kind of burlap screen that would sort of hide the wall behind that. And one of the things that was on the wall, literally behind my back, every time I would stand up to preach was a, a defibrillator. Now, if you know what a defibrillator is, it's one of those things that if somebody has a heart attack, you use the defibrillator to, to rouse them awake, to bring them back to life. And, and at first, it just seemed odd. And so we covered up with this burlap, but I just loved this image that there was this defibrillator behind me that every time I stood up to preach, I had a recognition of what was at stake. You see, sometimes we think that the story of the gospel, the story of God breaking into the world, we, we have a tendency to think somehow that it's just kind of a, like a performance-enhancing drug. Like we're already pretty good people, and we just want our lives to be a little bit better. And the gospel helps to kind of improve that, you know, 
sand off the edges, the challenges, make things just a little bit smoother. But having that defibrillator behind me, every time I would stand up and seek to proclaim the gospel, I had a sense that what we're really engaged in is about rousing dead people to life. A world that's broken and, and helping them to see that God is at work to animate it, to help us live into the fullness of our humanity, to make we who are dead alive to the reality of who we are, who God has made us to be, that the heavens and the earth might come together in our life, that we might get a glimpse in our relationships and our work of what God is up to. Every year at the end of uh, the, the year, NPR would do this story on new words that entered into the English language. And over the years, different words have been added to the English language because our culture continues to grow and develop. So words like retweet and unfriend have to get added to the dictionary, right? And, and Google and Uber. Now, you know that your company's made it when the name of your company becomes a verb, right? Like that's when you've arrived, so to speak. But one of the years when they were talking about this Scott Simon of NPR was reflecting on this new phrase that was being brought into the dictionary. Just saying. The origins of this word are murky. And he goes on to say, saying, I'm just saying, puts a fire escape onto the end of a sentence. It lets you express a stern, even a rude opinion, but not really. Because you're just saying, it invites listeners to discount what we've just heard, even as we're still reeling emotionally from the force of it, right? And so the Urban Dictionary says it makes it possible to deliver a rude comment in the guise of a mere opinion, disguised as an objective opinion, and who can argue with you over an opinion that you don't apparently support, right? But you got to wonder— What if Moses said, let my people go? Just saying, (laughs) right? What if FDR, when he was trying to rally Americans out of the Depression, said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself? Just saying. (laughs) What if Churchill, to inspire Britain in 1940, said, We shall fight them on the beaches, in the air, in the hills, and we will never surrender? Just saying. (laughs) And what if Martin Luther King said, I have a dream? Just saying. Do we really need a new phrase to help us be more sarcastic? more ironic and more insincere. And yet, how often do we say, Jesus Christ is Lord? Just saying. Backing away from our commitment at the very beginning of saying it. But let me tell you today, I've been a Christian for a long time, and following Christ is a lame hobby. There are plenty of other things to do with your time with your money, with your life, with your resources. When God calls us to follow him, to live a life worthy of the calling, worthy of this work that God has done, this expansive love that is broken into the world, it's an invitation to give our whole lives in response. And I mean all of it. Even the messiness of it. Because let's be honest, 
it's messy enough in our own life. And you get a bunch of broken people together in a room and it gets really messy fast. Eugene Peterson says, the gospel alternative to this cultural welter of one answer advice and crafty deceit, seduction and empty promises to a better life. We get that all the time, right? Self-help books, all this reality telling us five steps, 10 steps, 12 steps to a better life. The alternative to that is the church. Not unrealistically hopeful, but recognizing the brokenness of our world, the need for God to break in. The church is not an ideal. It is not, nor was it ever intended to be, the gathering of the nicer people in town. God is not fastidious in the company he keeps. These are men and women on the way to growing up into the full stature of Christ. Let us not diminish the work. It is large, it is expansive. It is the fullness of God inhabiting you and me and us, the church, together. It's large, but it's also small. It's about your life and mine, the particularity of it, the messiness of it, and it's slow work. Paul says, it's a work that we undertake with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. He knows it's hard work. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It will take all of who we are, a full commitment, because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's a lot of alls in there. It's a comprehensive vision. It's big, it's full, it's expansive. This kingdom of God thing is not abstract. It's not remote, it's not inaccessible, but it is ordinary, it is local, it is immediate, It is personal. It is your life. It is my life. It is our life together as we welcome each other into the company of Jesus. God stoops down, speaks our language, and calls us to himself. This is a challenging vision. We recognize the brokenness of our lives. How does this purpose of the church get into our lives? Well, it's as we look to him, as we seek to follow him, as we allow him to inhabit our lives, to participate in God's work among us. As Brent said, Mindy and I have been at Berkeley, and and years ago we were also student ministers at Berkeley. We led a group of students and intentional community and and they had all kinds of visions for their kingdom in the world let me tell you they were just waiting to be unleashed on the world to transform it and, and certainly there's no shortage of people with visions of their kingdom amen that we see on the news and on display all the time and these students when you got them in a room together had all kinds of ambitious ideas about how the world needed to change And yet there was also, as we got them together, a deep sense as we got to know them of all the brokenness and messiness in their life. And God takes all that and he fashions something new that we might know the fullness of his grace and mercy. On one particular occasion, we got students together and went on a retreat together and we took this pot, this vessel, and they were all sitting around the room and and we took this and we smashed it in the middle of the room together. 
And we handed them each a piece of the, the pot, little shards of, of this vessel. And we went around the room and each of them talked about the various ways and places in which their lives were broken. And they're longing to really see God bring healing to that part of their life. It was amazing to sit in this room of highly capable, well-educated students with visions and kingdoms full in their heart, and yet to hear these stories of the places of their deepest brokenness and their need, their longing for God to heal it. And as they would describe it, they would take their piece and walk to the center of the room and glue it to the other pieces. And over time, as people went around the room and shared, the vessel kind of got created, formed back, glued back together. But this time it looked very different. As each of them brought their brokenness and hope to the center and bound it with other people and offered it, really, to each other and to God. And the pot was there all cracked and broken and leaning to one side and As we were sitting there together, we turned the lights down in a recognition of the world that we live in, that we seek to do this thing called the church, to be a community of believers together. It's messy, and it's in the midst of the darkness of our world, right? But how grateful I am that that's not the end of the story. See, the gospel says that that isn't the end of the story at all, but in fact that Jesus, the light of the world, has entered into the darkness, his place in the midst of our broken communities, If we would just let him inhabit that space and be in our lives. And what happened is the lights went down and each of us sat around and looked at this pot as we got to see the light shine through the fractures and the fissures, the places of brokenness and weakness, the places where we as a community, and if we are honest, our larger communities in our world are all messed up, leaning and tilting And yet it's God who has come and has filled our lives, filled our churches, filled our communities. If we would just make space with our honesty and our hope to let him shine through. This is the purpose of the church. This is the mission of God to unite heaven and earth. The light of the world, the darkness, the frailty, the brokenness, the vulnerability of our lives to bear witness to the height, the depth, the full expanse, the immeasurably more beyond all we can ask or even imagine. And if you are longing for righteousness and justice in the world, longing for fruitfulness in your own life, for purpose and fullness, for forgiveness and healing, for reconciliation to happen, it's an invitation to join in God's mission, to allow him to live in us, to participate in this good work. It is not the case. It is not the case that the church of God has a mission in the world. But the God on mission has a church in the world to bear witness to his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Paul's encouragement to the church. The way that he won't just let them rest and sit in the median of life, watching the world spin by in all of its speed and brokenness, outpacing our ability to even adapt to the change and the challenges. 
But Lord, you spoke into our lives. You came as light into the darkness, as flesh and blood into our world, and you laid your life down that your light might shine in the broken places of our own lives. Forgiven, we might extend forgiveness. Reconciled to you, we might be people of reconciliation. You who have made peace in our hearts to be brokers of peace in the world. Lord, I pray that it would be so, not in our strength, but as we rest and rely on your strength. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name for this community, in this place, for this time. May your glory be known in us. In Jesus' name, amen.